The following audio has been brought to you by Word of Grace Community Church. For more information about Word of Grace, visit wogcc.com. Good morning, good morning. Excited to be back home to worship with you. It's just been really, really good, and God is just doing some amazing things. And just wanted to kind of bring you up to date on some of the good things God is doing up in Manitowoc. I've been serving up there for about 23 months now, and Boy, that time has just, just been just going by so fast. And, but God has done some great things. One of the first things I wanted to do was, uh, I'm on the north side of Manitowoc, close to the Two River area. And one of the first things I wanted to do, my church, and we have a sister church on the south side of Manitowoc, and we're probably the two largest churches in Manitowoc County. But there was a problem, is the churches weren't getting along very well, which is very, very sad. It should never be spoken of in the body of Christ that two churches can't get along. And, and so we, we got together and we talked about, well, let's do some outreaches. I said, well, you know, what good would that do? I mean, people were laughing stock. People think that uh, we don't get along. So why would, he want to, why would he want to hear the good news of Jesus Christ when we can't seem to embrace it ourselves? I mean, we're not, we're not living it. So how can we do that? I said, we need to fix the relationship between ourselves and, and our community, the, the body of Christ, to get healthy. Otherwise, people are going to laugh at us, and we're discrediting the gospel message when we cannot get along one with another. And so, long story short, we've, we've been working together. We've done some things together. And, and in fact, the, the pastor, I had coffee with him the other day, and he says, he says, Andy, I believe God has brought you up here for this very hour. He says, he says I've not met anyone that's, that is able to connect with other churches in our community as quickly and as well as you have. He goes, I believe God has brought you here to unify not only the body of Christ, but to bring transforming revival to Manitowoc County. And I thank you so much for it. And one of the things that we're working on already, we're talking about Easter. I know we haven't got past uh, Halloween or Thanksgiving yet, and, uh, but we're talking about Easter. And we're actually going to rent the Civic Community Center or Civic Capital Center downtown Manitowoc. Both churches are coming together. We're expecting 2,000 people to come to hear the gospel message on April 1st. April 1st, you know, and, and uh, we've got billboards that's going to go up. says, bamboozled. Are you bamboozled by life? You know, come hear God's foolproof plan for you. And we're going to be coming together. So already we're working on that. So be in prayer for us. We're working together. We're doing some great things together, building relationships with other churches in the community. I am so humbled and honored to be a part of what God is doing. And I had the privilege here in the first service seeing some old friends. We're going to be talking about investing in the next generation and when I walked in this morning to the first service, I saw Larry Genke and Wayne Warnicke, two men that have invested in my life. And I jokingly said that I can imagine Larry. Larry was one of the pillars that started this church. Without Larry, there would be no word of grace. And I know that when I was about 29, 30, I was so zealous and so dangerous, I felt that Larry wanted to create a little room and just lock me in it for a while. But, but he was patient with me, and, just, and he and Wayne both modeled great leadership. So I just want to honor them and thank them for investing in me and helping me to become the type of leader that not only honors God but values people, which I know is a core value here, is valuing people and, make, and making them feel valuable. So would you pray with me as we get into the Word this morning? Father God, I, I thank you for your Word. I thank you for what you're going to do in the lives and the hearts of every person that is here. Holy Spirit, have your way today. Have your way to grip our hearts with the gospel message, to bring about the transformation that you so desire. But help us, Lord, to see the importance of investing in the next generation so that we can launch them into what, you've, what you are preparing them for. 
Help remove all obstacles and all hindrances that are preventing people from embracing the fullness of what you died for them to be. So, Lord, help me to articulate clearly your word for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, open with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to look at verses 1 through 3. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Uh, I will be reading from the NIV version. So if mine reads a little bit differently than yours, that's why. Starts out, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, and he says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. When we talk about mentoring or pouring into the lives of other people, generally what comes to our minds is the biblical example of Paul investing in Timothy or Paul investing in Titus. But now while we rightly think of the Apostle Paul as the strategic spokesperson for Christ in the New Testament, we must never forget that behind Paul, there was a Barnabas. There was a Barnabas. In fact, Paul seemed to be echoing Barnabas when he wrote this to Timothy. Let me read it again, thinking about how Barnabas is echoing his mentor, uh, Tim, uh, mentoring, um, when Barnabas was mentoring Paul. He says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses in trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. We see here that by investing in Paul, Barnabas was engaging in a ministry of multiplication. In fact, every time you build into the life of another person, you launch a process that ideally will never end. And that's what God is calling us to do here, is to invest in the lives of other people. I often hear older men complaining about the younger generation. But my question is this, what are you doing to impact a young person in a positive, Christ-like way. What are you doing? It's easy to complain. It's easy to be a part of the problem. But how about being a part of the solution? What is God calling you to do? How has God called you to invest in the lives of other people? See, one of the things I have learned, I work well with, with millennials, and people say, well, how do you do this? I should write a book and sell it. I could probably retire, but... But I have found this about millennials. Millennials do not want to be micromanaged. They want your affirmation. They want to know that you believe in them, that you affirm them, that you value them. They don't want to be micromanaged. They want relationship. And when you build relationships with the millennials, what happens is you earn a right to speak into their lives because now they trust you. Because the agenda is not about you, it's about what can I do to invest in them so that they can reach their full potential in Christ? How can I navigate the storms of life and help them to become the people that Jesus died for them to be? It's easy for me to bark out orders, but how about walking alongside and, in, and being there as a, an encouragement and as a coach and as a support when they ask for that help? How about approaching it that, from that manner? You see, we can be a person of influence. In fact, to the degree that you shape others towards the image of Christ, you're becoming a Christian leader. 
But my focus today is not upon leadership, but on, but on becoming a leader maker. How do we make leaders? How do we invest in the next generation? And I believe that Barnabas was a model to that. In fact, we owe the ministry of two biblical leaders to the initiative and the advocacy of Barnabas. The Apostle Paul, who authored 13 of the epistles of the New Testament, and John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark. We owe their leadership, and they're coming to the forefront to the ministry of the Apostle Barnabas. You see, also Mark was also a very close associate to the Apostle Peter, and people don't realize that. As Timothy and, 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 and uh, Titus and Silas worked with Paul, so was the Mark with Peter. He was his right-hand man. He, he walked with him, and he was involved in his life. In fact, let's look at some of the marks of a biblical leader maker in the life of Barnabas. I think you're going to be encouraged here this morning. In fact, the man the apostles nicknamed the son of encouragement in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, Barnabas' real name was Joseph, not Barnabas. In fact, it says here in Acts 4, 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas which means son of encouragement. We see here in, in, in biblical days in the Hebrew culture that a person's characteristics, their personality, was helped to determine what they would be called. And in fact, they, they, when they looked at Joseph, they, they begin to say, this is a person, of, this is an encourager. He's investing in people's lives. He's speaking into their lives. He, looks, he sees good in people. So they called him the son of encouragement. In fact, the inference is that he was called the son of encouragement infers that someone invested in Barnabas, and he's simply replicating that which was invested in him as well. And so we see here he's called the son of encouragement. In fact, it says that he was a Levite, and a Levite was a tribe of the priesthood, so worship was a way of life for these people. So here is Barnabas, who was a part of the, of the Levitical priesthood, who was, who was giving himself to a life of worship, and worship is, you know, where we ascribe value and worth to God. Here, he had done this to such a degree that he was called the son of encouragement. So let's look at some of these traits of a biblical leader. The first thing we see here in Barnabas' life, that he was a risk taker. He was a risk taker. A biblical leader maker takes risk to support hopeful leaders. We see this in Acts chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. It says, when he, Paul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And here, now get this picture. Now, we know the background of the Apostle Paul. He was called Saul of Taurus. And, and his mission, he was trained by the, uh, by the Pharisee Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was known for his ability to persecute Christians. And so, Barnabas, I mean, so Paul was being mentored by Gamaliel, who took on the same mantle and began to also persecute Christians. And Paul would actually go into homes and drag men out of the homes and, and, and putting in prison men. And also even moms sometimes. And can you imagine just what Paul had to live with, the abuse that he bestowed upon Christians, sometimes making families orphans? 
and, and, and taking the husbands away from the family. Paul had to live with that. And so think about this. Now here's Paul, all of a sudden has a conversion, and he wants to, be, he wants to go into the inner circle and meet the apostles. Now I would have been a little apprehensive, as the other apostles were. You've got to be kidding me. This is probably a trap. He gets to our core. He kills all of us. He will stifle the mission. Try to see it from their perspective. I would have been a little apprehensive knowing Paul's reputation. Here was a man holding the clothing to those who were stoning Stephen and, 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 and affirming that action. And so here, all of a sudden, he has this, this experience. In fact, they didn't even want to hear Paul talk. So Barnabas is recounting the conversion of, of Paul. So Barnabas, to me, shows me that he was a very good listener because he recounts to perfection what happened to Paul. He says that the Apostle Paul, on his road to Damascus, was knocked off his horse, and he was blind, and, 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 and God spoke to him. He says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you kicking against the pricks? And he says, who is this, Lord? It is I, Jesus. And then Paul is blinded by that, and then another another disciple named Ananias takes him by the hand and leads him in the way he should go and then baptizes him and then Paul's eyes are open and he begins to proclaim the gospel message but no one wanted to have anything to do with him because they were terrified is this a scheme but you see Barnabas was a risk taker Barnabas could ask himself what about my own reputation I'm associating with this murderer I'm associated with this persecutor what are others going to think about me? Barnabas didn't think that way. He looked at Paul and saw good in Paul. He took a risk because he believed that God had done a work in Paul's heart. How about us today? Are we risk takers? Or are we afraid to be guilty by association? Are we willing to do what God has put it in our hearts to do? Are we willing to get dirty? Are we willing to get messy, to invest in the least of these, the down and outers, the people that nobody seemed to want? Do, are we able to look into their hearts, into their lives, and begin to see potential in them? Jesus died for all of us. But we as a church so many times are so guilty of shooting our wounded instead of ministering healing to them and help them to reach their full potential in Christ. Barnabas was a risk taker. Are we willing to be a risk taker? I remember one of the things I admired about my dad was that he, that he had the ability to believe in other people when nobody else wanted them. Any, anybody that's being ostracized, my dad was always the type of person that wanted to give them a second chance. He always believed in people. Now, my dad was, we grew up very, very poor. And most of you heard my story. I grew up in West Virginia, no running water or, or, or indoor plumbing. Until I moved to Wisconsin, 1976 was the first time I had indoor plumbing or running water. All my years through high school, grew up with none of that. I, I jokingly tell people, we were so poor, we had a family from Haiti, Haiti that wanted to sponsor us. <laughs> in fact, we weren't even poor, we were poor. We couldn't afford the extra O in the word poor. <laughs> but I learned these things from my dad of how to invest in the lives of other people. I learned how to take risk. I learned it was not about me. I learned that God had downloaded some gifts and some abilities in me to help other people to get to where God had called them to be. I remember when I first came in here a few years ago, 
when Pastor Derek asked me to come on staff. And he, he had heard about me. My reputation had preceded me, good or bad. But he had heard, and, and he, says, he, says, he says, Andy, how would, you, how would you like to preach more? And I said to him, Derek, I so enjoy hearing you preach, I don't care if I ever preach again. And I meant that. I fully meant that. Because I, I'm blessed every time I, I, I hear his, his, the, how God uses him to speak the word. But you see, now I'm working at a, a pastoring a church where I could, I could preach 52 times. But I've chosen to preach maybe half that because I want to invest in the next generation. I have young pastors that I'm developing. I had a, a pastor that preached last week in my church. I got one preaching, another staff member preaching this week because I'm here. I enjoy seeing young people excel and how God has wired them. One of the greatest compliments I had was last week when one of my associates uh, spoke from the pulpit. And one of the people in the congregation says, says, Pastor, I want to tell you, I have seen the growth in this young man from the 23 months you have been here. It is amazing to see how he, his ability to, to deliver the gift that God has put in him. It's because I'm helping him to develop that gift. And I, I don't really need any of the affirmation or accolades about it because I know I'm doing what God has asked me to do, which is to invest. Now, I run a risk. I could grow the church under my own personality, but then what happens when I leave? Does the church falter because it's built upon my personality, or do I raise up the next generation that's going to take the mantle and preach the Word of God, regardless behind the pulpit, the Word is being proclaimed, lives are being transformed. That's what God has called me to do. And so I see Barnabas here has the same type of mindset. He wants to invest in the next generation and, and help them reach their full potential. The second trait that we see here is that Barnabas says he had a good eye and a glad heart. He, had a, he has a good eye and a glad heart. In Acts 11, 23 through 24, he says, when he, is referring to Barnabas, when he, when Barnabas arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them. So typical of Barnabas. He was glad when he was seeing a, the work of God, the work of grace occurring in, in this city. And he, then he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. I see here that Barnabas had a real sensitivity of the things around him. Barnabas had a good eye and a glad heart for the, for the potential of grace. Are you able to go and begin to see the potential of grace being at work in people's lives? Or do you take this wait-and-see approach? Are you willing to take a risk and begin to see the potential and help tap into that potential to help people to excel to how God has wired them? Are we willing to do that? See, the church here was new and is very imperfect, but Barnabas saw the work of grace and it made him glad as he began to encourage them to hold fast to the power of grace. He knew how to stir up the embers of grace so that they could fan them into flames. Many times we have to contend with people who have buckets of criticism that are ready to pour on the ashes of imperfection. It's so easy to criticize. It's so easy to condemn. But can you look and see the potential and begin to fan that into flame that these people become flaming vessels for Jesus? Or do we say, I want someone else to do it. I don't want to get dirty. I don't want to take the risk. But we see Barnabas here looking to take this risk. He was able to look beyond their, their shortcomings and began to see their potential because he knew that his God could do anything. I look at my own life and I see the number of shortcomings I've had in my own life and still have and how God has used me to bring glory to his name and to invest in the lives of other people. 
See, that's what gets me up in the morning, is investing in the lives of other people. I'm just so excited when I look at people and I begin to see the potential to give people the benefit of the doubt. And I know that can be risky, friends. It can be risky. It takes a real sensitivity to the voice of God. Is God speaking or am I yielding to the flesh? It requires spending time in God's presence that you can hear his voice knowing what he's telling you to do, knowing what he's downloading into you to help you to accomplish what he's called you to do. Friends, it's not just a checklist. Well, I've done steps one through five. Now this is the result. But it's making yourself available because, the, because every person is unique. They are fearfully and wonderfully made. Jesus died for each and every person here. And, and, and what makes us unique is our diversity. We have different gifts that we can bring, that we can use to transform our community. We're not all just uh, cookie cutters of one another, but we're different. That's what, that's what makes it so exciting. But yet, so many times we are afraid to step out of people who do not fit our, our, our mold of what we anticipate Christians should look like and look and act like. But yet, we have to have a good eye and a glad heart. In order to effectively invest in the next generation, you have to first recognize how God has wired you. You have to know your strengths, and you also need to know the areas where you need to grow. Don't act as if you have already arrived. Because if you begin to act as if you've got it all together and that you have already arrived, I have news for you. Pride goes before a fall. We have to always remain teachable and available for the Lord to use us. We have to be sensitive to the things around us. We have to be sensitive to the people that God brings into our lives. I believe so strongly in divine appointments. God is constantly bringing people into my life. Not only am, am I able to download to them, but they're also able to download to me. It's just not a one-way street here. Every person that I encounter, I believe that God has gifted me to be able to help them, but also they can help me so that I can grow as well. We never stop growing. We never stop learning as believers. We need to continue to develop the gifts that we have been given because, you see, spiritual gifts are given to us to build up the church. And the more effectively that we refine those gifts, the more, e more effective and efficiently that we can use those gifts to bring health and wholeness to the church. The third trait that we see is that it was humble and self-effacing. Self humble and self-effacing. Barnabas had the ability, he had this beautiful gift of being able to fade into the background while pushing others into prominence. Listen to the wording here. In Acts chapter 11, verses 25 through 26, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, listen to that, for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people for a whole year. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. All these years they were ministering the word, but it was at Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Don't you believe that there were some character traits that Paul and Barnabas were demonstrating? The same, they're preaching this message about Jesus. In fact, Barnabas is so kind-hearted and so gracious. And I, I, that's what I hear about this Jesus, that he was a man of great compassion. And yet, I think due to the ministry of Barnabas and Paul, they recognized this character trait 
that these disciples must be called Christians, followers of Christ, first time in Antioch. In fact, one writer in commentating on this passage said that Barnabas was an earthly reflection of the Holy Spirit. In Greek, the Holy Spirit is called a paraclete. A paraclete is one who's called alongside to help. One called alongside to help. He's also a comforter, a teacher. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But yet, this was the characteristic and traits that Barnabas was displaying as a leader in the early church. He was the one who came alongside to help, to develop. He was there to comfort. He was there to teach. And then we see here in, in Acts 13, verses 2 and 7, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Verse 7, The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. Now, up to this point, they were generally addressed as Barnabas and Saul. And generally back then, when a person was addressed first, it acknowledged their position of leadership, that he was the one that was in charge. But we see something here distinct that begins to happen. In Acts 13, verses 8 through 10, note the change. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil, an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now, this is probably not how Barnabas would have addressed it with Elymas. Because Barnabas was much more compassionate, much more grace-oriented. And I can see Barnabas say, well, let's, do you understand that Elymas means son of a sorcerer? Do you, have you changed your heart? Which means if you've changed your heart, your ways also have to change. But Barnabas comes, I mean, but Paul comes and says, you son of the devil you are. You're wicked. There's no good in you. And everything you're associated with is no good as well. But then we see immediately in, in chapter 13, verse 13, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John Mark left them to return to Jerusalem. Paul here is now addressed first, and Barnabas isn't even mentioned here at all. So, be, so behind the emergence of the greatest missionary and the greatest theologian is the aging Barnabas, humbly giving way to the explosive young Paul. Now, it's not uncommon for someone with this ability to look for people with better gifts than his own and then begins to push them forward. This is what we see here, that Barnabas acknowledges and recognizes the gifts in Paul and begins to put him into the forefront. One of the things that, I, that really gets me going every day is, is getting up and, and ministering to younger ministers. I, I work with some young ministers up in Michigan that call me on a regular basis and say, Pastor, I just want to bounce this off of you. How would you handle this? What, what advice would you give me about this? Or sometimes it's a doctrinal issue. What does the Bible say about this particular teaching? Can you expound to, to me clearly, more clearly this, this particular position? Or he'll say, I'm having, a, I'm having a staff issue. How would you advise me to address the staff issue? Or I'm having an issue within our congregation. I know that doesn't happen here. But, but he goes, I've got an issue with, with one of my parishioners. How would you advise me to handle that? You know, I, I, that really excites me. And it's not that I've got it all figured out, but when you've done this for 40 years, you've learned a lot of, a lot of ways not to do things. 
And I've learned a lot of ways on not to do certain things. So that kind of restricts my resources, what to pull into to, to drag out things that are, that are real and that are, that are effective. And just recently, I've been in my district for about 23 months now, and I just got a phone call from them about a month ago and says, says Pastor, we're hearing such great things in Manitowoc, what you're doing up there. It says, what you are doing in bringing unity to the body of Christ in Manitowoc County, going across denominational lines, he goes, it's unheard of. He goes, and, and, he go, and in fact, he said to me, he goes, I've never been able to work with my staff. I've always had one staff member that was always a thorn in my, thorn in my side. How do, you, how do you develop that? And, and so they've started this, they started this uh, part in our district called Church Health Leadership, and they asked me to be a part of the consulting team to bring about church health. Because I said, you know, your church will only be as healthy as your leadership. You cannot run programs to create church health when everybody else on your staff and leadership is sick. Everybody, everybody will come to church and they'll die together. You have to get people healthy that are in leadership because your church will only be as healthy as your leadership. And so, so I begin to show them and tell them how, how we are doing this. And, it, and it's investing in the next generation. My whole staff is a lot younger than me. But I'm able to invest in them. And the first thing I tell them is, is how is your marriage? How is your family life? Because you, if, you, if you ruin your marriage and you ruin your family life, you, just, you discredit yourself in ministry. So how's that? Are you valuing your wife? Are you showing your children value? Or has the church become your mistress? Can your children look at you and say, my daddy was always there for me? No, the church did not take first precedence over me. But he invested in me. I believed, and he believes in me. He loves me. I said, that has to be the first thing that the church has to see modeled is how well is your pastors running his household. Now, that's biblical. That's biblical. How well are you running your household? And so, and so I begin to share these things with them of how to develop uh, health in our, in our district. And they've asked me to work with every pastor in our district to replicate what we are doing right now. That's amazing. It's only in 23 months. And, I, and I'm just... God is just doing something quick. He's accelerating things. But see, this is, what, this is how I am wired. I am wired because I want to see other people succeed in the giftings that God has put in their lives. I'm not out to, to make a name for myself. I'm here to, to transform communities with the gospel message so that people can be saved and reach their full potential in Christ. That's my heartbeat. And God is allowing me to do that. He's opened up these doors of opportunity. And, and I'm just so blessed to be a part of that. I know when I first came here, I had, I had a man come up to me after one service as pastor. Since you have been here at Word of Grace, there's such peace. There's such peace. And we haven't had that before. There's such peace. And, you know, I wasn't doing anything other than investing in the, the younger staff that was here. In fact, that's why Pastor Derek hired me was just to be their mentor, just to be able to pour myself into their lives because of my experience. That's how we invest in the next generation. We have to pour ourselves into the lives of other people. It gets dirty. It gets messy. That's why we have to be a risk taker. But we also have to know our, our surrounding areas. But we also have to be willing to, pr pr to push people to the forefront without any acknowledgement that, oh, that's what you did. See, all I need is, all I need is to hear the Lord says, thou, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I don't need any other acknowledgement or accolades. Just hear my Jesus say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I gave you a gift and you used it to the fullest. Can God say that about you? The fourth and final 
trait that we see here in investing in the lives of others is patient with the failure of others. Patience with the failures of others. We see in Acts 15, 36 through 40, some time later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. <coughs> Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. My question here is this, who was right, Paul or Barnabas? In our Western cultures, someone's always got to be right. People have a hard time accepting that there's tension between decisions that are made. What if both men were right in what they chose? But yet, this commentator tried, tried to prove that Paul was the one who was right. But you know, many times in ministry, it's a judgment call. It's a judgment call in ministry. See, Barnabas seemed to focus on the need and the potential of Mark. And Paul seemed to focus on the demands and the potential of the larger cause of the gospel and the honor of the mission. See, Paul's orientation to the ministry was so gospel-centered that the emotions and opinions of other people did not matter to him. It had no importance whatsoever. But to Barnabas, that was huge. That was very important. We see in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 10, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Am I trying to win the approval of human beings? This is the Apostle Paul writing. Am I trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. One of the things I want to suggest to you is that I think both men were right. And we're going to see that in just a moment. Because every one of us are wired differently. The Apostle Paul was wired, wired in such a way that he was very direct. This is what the Word of God says, walk you in it. Barnabas, who was wired in a way, was very compassionate towards people. I'm not saying that Paul wasn't, but Barnabas was hardwired that way. He could see the grace, the potential grace in the lives of people. And I could see him say, well, let me speak into his life. Let me find out why he, he deserted us. Why did he depart from the mission? There has to be a reason, Paul. I'm going to invest and find out what it is so that he doesn't repeat that behavior in another situation. So that was, that's how Barnabas would have, would have approached it. He would have looked at what is the potential in this person. How can I help them reach their, the giftings that God has put in their lives? <clears throat> See, we learn in leadership that a man's strength can also be his weakness, which is why we need to recognize the need of diversity of strengths. This is how God builds community in order to accomplish his will and purposes and bring transformation to those he's entrusted to us. See, my leadership style is probably a lot more like Barnabas than Paul's. It's funny, I was just doing a research, uh, doing a study in the book of Romans at my church, and I was doing a research upon what did the Apostle Paul look like. The Apostle Paul was a balding, short, pudgy guy. <laughs> I stopped and looked in the mirror, I go, no. <laughs> then I realized I'm a lot more like Barnabas, even though I may look like Paul. 
But we see here that my leadership style is much more like Barnabas. I'm a facilitator. I'm a connector. I like to create buy-in to the things that I'm working on. I'm not a director that just likes to bark and tell people what to do. I like to have people take ownership. But that's my style. And both, both styles are okay. But you have to know how you're wired so that you can utilize that to the way that God would have you utilize that to speak into people's lives. In Proverbs 18, verse 16, it says, A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. A person's gift will make a ways of opportunity for you. I can see that this is the season that God has me in a position of pastor at the church I'm in. This is the right season for me because my gift opened the doors. I didn't have to go in and, and try to toot my own horn and brag about all my accolades. In fact, I'm at a church that there's no way they should have hired me. Totally contrary to a lot of the positions of faith that I have. But yet, they hired me because I had the ability to develop leaders. They hired me because I had the ability to bring harmony to churches that are wounded. That's why they hired me. And it wasn't, it wasn't I had no resume other than just the testimonies of the churches I have invested in, the leaders I have invested in, how their lives had changed. God opened the doors of opportunity. And any one of you here, God can take those same gift. If you're still breathing, God wants to use the gift he's put in you to invest in the next generation. You may be the next person that's going to raise up the next Billy Graham. Very few people know the farmer's name that led Billy Graham to the Lord. But yet we look at the fruit of that ministry. Maybe you are the next person to invest in the next Billy Graham. We have to look at things that way. Now we see in 2 Timothy 4, verse 11. Here's Paul's request for Mark. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Let me ask you this. If Barnabas had not taken the time to go after John Mark and invest in Mark's life, would he have written the gospel of Mark that we now know of? Would he have been an associate to the apostle Peter? Or would he have taken that no one wants me, I'm a failure, I'm a loser, therefore I might as well just give up? But yet Barnabas took the time to invest in Mark's life. And as a result of that, we have the gospel of Mark. Think about how he invested in him when nobody else wanted to invest in Mark. Paul cast him aside, but yet Paul, as he gets older, begins to see the fruit of Mark's ministry. And he says this, he is helpful to me in my ministry. So friends, it is never too late to invest in the next generation. If we apply these principles of investing in the next generation, we will hand off the church to the next generation better than we found it. Grace compels us as a church to invest in the next generation, even if that means putting our personal preferences aside to reach them. Let me share a quick story as I'm, as I'm concluding here. I've been working with our worship team at our church because I have this perception in my mind what I expect of our worship team to do. There's certain things that I like. And I grew up in the generation where there's a lot of celebratory worship. There's a lot of excitement, a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm. But if you, if you check in the top five songs in contemporary gospel music, the songs are no longer celebratory, but they're contemplative. They're reflective. 
There's a lot of, there's a lot of words, and it, it gets you to think a little bit, to reflect deeply within. I remember when I started this thing, when I got involved in ministry here, probably 30-some years ago, being involved, one of the greatest complaints that I got from everybody was, I don't like the music. It's too loud. It's this and it's that. We, we like the old hymns. And as I was praying about this and thinking about this, and because I'm not really excited about this contemplative type music, I began to think, am I becoming one of those people that wants hymns? Am I becoming that generation? And then I realized, it's not about you. It is not about you. Use the tools and the resources that God puts in your hands to invest in the next generation so that God can bring about transforming revival to the people in your community. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that your word will not return void, but it will truly accomplish what you intended it to do. You have sent your word, Lord, to heal and to deliver your people from destruction. In that, we rejoice. And Lord, we exalt your holy name. We pray, Lord, that you would take this word and cause it to be impregnated with each and every heart that it will bring about a favorable response and a call to action that will bring honor and glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Word of Grace. For more sermons or any other information, visit wogcc.com.